we selected an ambitious program to try to do all in one, in one time. Uh, the Shabbat prayers, the meaning and the structure. Uh, well, I'm going to try to do it all in one class. We'll see how, you know, how, uh, how, how much we're able to fit in. Uh, and, of course, when we talk about Shabbat prayers, there's a lot of overlap between Shabbat prayers and regular weekday prayers. Uh, what I selected here is a few Shabbat prayers to look at that are exclusive to Shabbos, that don't, uh, we don't say them any other time. Uh, because we try to, and the idea is to try to analyze and examine and probe and investigate these prayers to see what they teach us about Shabbos, about prayer, and kind of get the feeling of the themes that are trying to be conveyed. So let us start with the evening prayers. Uh, and the, the structure for the prayers is the same as it is throughout every prayer. Every prayer, every Amidah prayer, starts off with the three, same three blessings. Uh, and then it launches into the blessing of the day. So that on, on, on a regular day is you know, the weekday prayers, and Shabbat is the Shabbat prayers, and on the holidays, the holiday prayers. Roshani and Kippur, they have their own kind of the middle section, and then the end section is the same. So the, the bootkins of every prayer is the same. Uh, what's, in the, what's in the middle depends on the time. So after we say the first three blessings, we read as follows. Uh, this is from Friday night, Mayriv, or Mayriv, uh, for Shabbos. Uh, at, um, and the Hebrew words are atakidasha, which means you sanctify the seventh day for your name's sake, the conclusion of the creation of heaven and earth, of all days you blessed it, of all seasons you sanctified it, and so it is written in your Torah. And we quote the verse in the beginning of the Torah that describes Shabbos. Thus the heaven and earth were finished, and all their legions. On the seventh day God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on it he had rested from all his work, which God created to make. That is the beginning of the evening prayers. So what you'll notice right off the bat is that we start off talking about holiness. God sanctified the seventh day. It's the holy day. In fact, the name for Shabbos uh, is also Shabbos Kodesh, which means the holy Shabbos. You know, if you were to ask my child, my two-and-a-half-year-old kid, on Friday morning, what's tonight? He would say Shabbos Kodesh, because I trained them well. Right? You know, so the, the, there is this intimate connection between the idea of holiness and Shabbos. Not only that, it's incidental, or maybe it's not, uh, that this past week's parsha that we just read on Shabbos is called Kedoshim, which means holy, or holies. Uh, and the first mitzvah of, of this week's parsha, of this past week's parsha, is, is to be holy. Uh, and the idea of holiness is an idea that is pervasive throughout our religion. Uh, but I think it's also not so well understood. What does it mean to be holy? What does holiness mean? What's the definition even of holiness? How, you know, how, how do you become holy? And in fact, the, the verse, the mitzvah that we read, we should be holy because God's holy. So God's holy and we should be like God by becoming holy. What is going on over here? Uh, so what is holiness? How is holiness associated with Shabbos? God sanctified the seventh day. This is the holy day. What is going on over here? Uh, and what does the activities 
that we do on Shabbos, or more specifically, the activities that we refrain from doing on Shabbos. We don't work on Shabbos. We abstain from work. We rest on Shabbos because God rested on Shabbos. And somehow that equates to holiness. And that is kind of the theme that is, uh, you know, the, the dominant idea of this prayer. What is going on over here? Uh, and, and how do we find our way and get some meaning out of it? So the mitzvah of Shabbos. So God rested, we rested. But we don't really rest, right? What do we do? We wake up in the morning, and you go pray, and you come home, and your kids are home. How do you rest with the kids being home? Right? It's, not, it's, not, it's not a vacation. You know, and you're, and you're resting, but you're, are you resting? What if, you're, what if the shul is a mile away? You walk there. Isn't that more stressful? Isn't that more work? You know, you, it's good exercise, but it's not, it's not is it rest? And kind of, how do we equate not doing very specific categories of work with rest? You know, if, if you know, we, we, we don't write on Shabbat. One of the third categories of work is not to write. Is that so stressful to write? To write? But isn't the reason we don't write is because <clears throat> we don't create on Shabbos, right? I mean, God didn't create on Shabbos, so if you're writing, you're creating words, I guess. Okay, so I like where you're going. We're going we're gonna to get, get to there. Okay. So you're saying it's not just about rest the way we understand rest. Right. It's something a little bit more sophisticated, a little more... Okay, let's... let's, 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 let's uh, Trying to emulate God, I guess, by not, not resting per se, but... I mean, yes, you rest, but you also don't create. Okay, so let's... That's, I like that a lot. And I'm, 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 we're going we're gonna to go there. Uh, but I want to try to build up uh, kind of from the ground up. God's holy... We're told to be holy, right? The Ramban explains, the great commentator, he says that the only way that a human can have a relationship with God is if the human kind of becomes on the same wavelength that God is. If we're not holy, there's absolutely no touch point that we could have with God, right? We're on different wavelengths. We become holy, then we can have a relationship with God. But this idea, like we... We could say it, but it sounds bizarre. Like, what does it mean to have a relationship with God? What is this, you know, how, how, how do we become holy? And, how, and what does this even mean to, to become like God or to emulate God or to God's holy? We should become holy. This sounds like very advanced ideas. Now, of course, there's precedence for this idea. We have a mitzvah of the Torah, the halach to bedrachov. We should go walk in the ways of God. Just like God is merciful, we should be merciful. Just like God is kind, we should be kind. Just like God is benevolent, we be benevolent. In fact, we are told that uh, man in his most perfect state, or his or her most perfect state, is called in the image of God. Our nation is called a holy nation. What does this all mean? So I want to kind of go back to the basics here. The overarching purpose of the world is what we call tikkun olam. This is the foundational idea of Jewish history, and it's essentially the, the destiny of the mission, the mission, the collective mission of all of us. There's another name for this, by the way, which is called Mashiach. The, the, those two are referring to the same thing. Uh, the idea of Tikkun Olam, the idea of Mashiach, those, that, that, that's the same. Now, what does it mean? It means that the Almighty placed us in a world with a challenge. The Almighty gave us a broken world, and we're going to try to 
fix the world. We fix the world, the world is fixed, we have achieved our destiny, our purpose. Now, what about the world's broken? Like, is there a return policy? Can we get the return shipping? Like, like you know, it's like when you buy something from the store and it's damaged. You know, why would the Almighty give us something broken? And what about it is broken? And how do we engage in trying to fix what's broken? Now, the answer is is that our life, our world, is dominated by our perception of the world and our engagement with the world and our priorities that we have and our ambitions in the world. And we all start off life as being body first, soul second. The body's agenda, the body's mission, the physical orientation, our physical existence is how we identify and thus what we prioritize in our lives what we strive to attain, what we value, what we yearn, what we hope for, what we aspire to become great at. And indeed, that's not holy. And in such an existence, we're kind of on a very different wavelength from God, and we have no kind of way of connecting to it. And the core conflict of our existence is we start off as being physical, physically dominated, and the soul is kind of just there. And thus, indeed, it's, it's broken. And it's broken on an individual and, of course, on a collective level as well. We fix the world, we fix ourselves by flipping around this paradigm, by changing from being physically-centric being body-centric to being soul-centric. And indeed, this is the process of holiness. And this is what brings us towards connecting to God, towards fixing the world. If we are soul-first and body-second, we fix ourselves, we fix the world, and we are on the way towards Tikkun Olam and Mashiach. Uh, now, we've spoken about this before, and I just want to kind of do it uh, quickly, but I- indeed, if we examine it logically, we'll realize that our physical existence, each and every one of us, our body, our material assets, our physicality, all that is on a, uh, uh, it's a runaway train. It's guaranteed to end poorly. Why? Because however you slice it, we're all going to end up dead and our body will start decomposing, and what will be of all our material assets, what do we have from that? Nothing. Uh, But our soul lives forever. Our soul is eternal. Our good deeds are eternal. The Talmud makes it very vivid by saying that when you do a mitzvah, you create a spiritual entity that lasts forever. Thus, it's illogical to invest, uh, the example we've given before, I'll say it again, you you don't invest on the beachfront property when every year the water gets a foot higher. And you know that in a few years, your your beachfront property is going to be in the water. You don't do that. Yet, we all do that every day of our lives. So it's, it's illogical, but we don't realize it. 
And when we invest in our soul, we're investing on something that will last forever. It's not, not even a 99-year lease. 99,000-year lease. It's forever. Yet, we have our priorities upside down. In fact, the Talmud goes, uh, just succinctly explains that our world is exactly the opposite of reality. It's exactly, everything's upside down. Everything that we sh- ought to prioritize, we don't, we say, oh, we'll take care of that. That, that, that. that will work itself out. And the things that are just there, that are just a means to an end, that we make as our most important priorities. And it's just, it, 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 it's, it's, you know, it's, it's mind-bogglingly insane, you know. It, it doesn't make any sense. But that's the way we orient it, and that's why we have a life and challenges to try to fix it. Now, to achieve this transformation, we're given the Torah. The Torah is the tool that draws us closer to our spiritual and eternal aspects of our lives and kind of nudges us away from being singularly focused on our physical and our body. And that's holiness. Holiness is where man can become more godlike, more removed from the physicality, more eternal. This is what it means to be in the image of God. This is what it means to be a holy nation. What are we a holy nation? What's the, what's the, we're a nation like any other nation, right? Well, what makes us a holy nation the way we're described? The answer is because we have a Torah that propels us towards holiness, towards divesting ourselves of our investments or, I want to be a little bit careful with this, because we don't divest ourselves of this world. Rather, we understand the proper value, the proper prioritization that we ought to accord to the physical world. We treat it as a means, not an end. We treat it as a tool, as a stepping stone, as something that can help us towards our overarching goal in life. Indeed, we're told that this world, right, this physical world, is a, a, a vestibule or a hallway or a corridor towards the next world. You need the corridor. The only way to get there is via the corridor. But is the corridor the goal? No, you, we always have our eye on, on, the, on the end goal, on, 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 on this fixed world. And, but that doesn't mean that we... You know, we're, we're not ascetics. We, we, we don't live on mountaintops and give away everything that we have. That's not what we do. The Talmud goes as far as saying that the tzaddikim, the righteous ones, they value their money more than their body. Which sounds, doesn't sound so righteous, right? But it doesn't say their life, it says their body. The answer is, even man's body we treat as a tool. Because the body also is going down to zero. And the money is also going down to zero. We're all not going to have any value from our, from our physical and material assets in 100 years from now. I, I don't know. I hope maybe I'll still be around 100 years. 150 years from now. None of us. For sure. The question is, okay, maybe the, the righteous people said we could do more mitzvahs with our money. Thus, they value that because that is more of a means towards their true end than, the, than their body. Which is an interesting idea. But, the, but the, perspective, the perspective of holiness is one where we are trying to create this perfect world 
we're trying to achieve this Tikkun Olam, we're trying to be contributors towards Mashiach by fixing the world, by changing the paradigm, by becoming people that are focusing on the goal, not on the means, by looking towards this ballroom that we're trying to go towards and not spending too much time right, being fascinated and being captured and being enraptured by the corridor that we're, you know, we're walking by. The corridor should be nice, of course. The corridor's important. But don't lose sight. Don't make that the priority. Don't, don't pitch your tent. It's like tailgating. Right? It's like the people that tailgate, but they, they don't even go to the game. Right? The tailgating is a nice thing to prepare you for the game, right? But if, if that's all you do, you miss, out on the, you miss out on the party. Everyone's like, you know, you're like, whoa, what happened? Where are all my friends? Right? What's going on? Right? All I have is this grill and this... Uh, well, I know. Tailgating is, is good, but it's a, it's a means to prepare. I don't know if that's the best example, but... <laughs> either, huh? Your Bucky's analogy was better. You like the Bucky's analogy? Yeah. Okay. We, did, I, did I say that here? I don't know yeah, if I said that. Oh, uh, yeah. So I said that the... Um, the, the, uh, the Bucky's, right? Everyone's here been to Bucky's? So it used to be that well, it still is in some places. I drive to Canada every year. I know it's still like that. It used to be that, or it still is in some places, that when you were taking a, a, a long drive, you every four hours you got to stop, go to the bathroom to get another coffee, to go fill up gas, right? And you walk to these bathrooms, and it's it's so disgusting. You can imagine, like, how is it possible for humans to be so vile? And create such a mess, you know. And but why do you do that? Like, why would you ever stop at such a place? It's disgusting. I gotta take years in your elbows to open doors. And the answer is because you need to stop to get your energy, to get your gas, to go to the bathroom, to get your coffee, to keep on trucking. It's not this, you know. This is just a, you know. This is a place where you stop, and this is not a destination. And then comes along Bucky's. Immaculate bathrooms. Huge gas station, right? And not only that, they're selling souvenirs inside a gas station, inside a rest stop. And this totally changes everything. This, this is what this world is like. People go to Bucky's and then they forget about their trip. They ignore their destination. And imagine, like, we, you're coming with your family, you're trying to travel somewhere, and you said, let's stop for gas. And you stop for gas. And you stay there the rest of the day. <laughs> and, you, you know, maybe it's not, a, uh, yeah, I'm saying, but the, 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 that's what this life is like. It's, it's, <laughs> that was my, I never said it here, I guess I never said it here. Um, and, and yeah, it does captivate us. You're like, ooh, it's so nice to have such a nice bathroom. Like, yeah, but if you get too caught up and you just forget about your journey, you're not going to get to where you need to get to. That's, that's the, uh, the muscle, the parable. Uh, and that's what this world's like. It's it's very it's very nice. It's all immaculate. It's all clean. And but you real you don't realize that you might miss your destination. You won't get there in time. So Torah is there to change this perspective. Torah is there to create this arena of holiness. Uh, I'll give you guys examples here. We have the the holiday of Passover. We just celebrated Passover. Humans do something that under any other circumstances would be entirely illogical. We stop eating bread for seven days. Instead, we replace it with these crackers that 
cause chaos to your innards. Not only that, they caused a bloody fortune. Someone, uh, someone I know calculated how much his matzah costs. And he said it cost him about 35 cents per bite. Yeah, like you got the big shmur matzahs, the expensive ones. It's like $30 a pound. You know, and he said, that's what I got, 35 cents per bite. Why would humans pay so much money to get such a little? Well, the answer is, well, what's, what's matzah all about? Matzah is just nourishment. Matzah is, when you stop in the gas station, just because you need to keep on going. That's the only reason why you stop there. You need gas, you need food, you need a refuel. That's all the reason, that's all, that's all you need. You're not stopping for any other reason besides for that. Matzah is a food that has nothing going for it besides the fact that it'll keep you alive for another day. That's it. And for seven days, we stop and we say, this is what really life ought to be. We really should be taking out of this world, physical world, energy, right? The corridor, it's, the, the, the gas station is there to refuel and to keep our going. Keep our life Keep our eye on the ball. Keep our eye on the future. Of course, we don't do that all, all year round, you know. But but it's it's a certain, you know, it's a certain sensitivity that we try to revisit every year. And then we have the holiday of Sukkot. And in Sukkot, you leave your house, which is climate controlled, which has electric outlets, which has cable TV, which has comfortable water, comfortable beds, and running water. And so you know what I'm going to do. You know this house that I'm that it, you know that I, I'm paying fifteen thousand dollars a year in property tax for? You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna leave, and I'm gonna move into a little teepee outside, a little hut, and I'll be exposed to the elements. I'll be super hot in the in, you know in 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 the you know the, during the day. It might rain at night, and you might have a visit a visitation of raccoons or whatnot. This is where I'm gonna live, and that's the mitzvah. Why would, why would someone ever? Why would anyone ever do that? The answer is to remember that life is temporary. We leave our permanent, this is what the Talmud says, leave your permanent domain, your permanent domicile, and move into a temporary domicile. Why would you do that? For seven days? Well, the answer is, it's, it's a reminder that this life is temporary. Are really. Are the only ones required to do that? Who? Just ask. Well, it's a mitzvah for everyone, but uh, uh, certain parts of the mitzvah are only, are only for men, right? I don't know many. Yeah, well, it is time bound, so. But is it specifically for men, or do women have to do that too? Just ask women you. don't have to do it. Thank women you. can do it. I know, but if you don't have to, why do? Yeah, okay, but yeah, but 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 the holiday itself, you know, the, that's the thing. And there there could be people, by the way, that sit in a sukkah and don't ever think about what the meaning is. But it, we're told very plainly. In the Talmud, leave your permanent house, living spaces, living quarters, and move into a temporary living quarters. And that's a way to remember our life here, we think it's permanent, right? We walk into our house, this is our permanent place where we live. And the answer, the truth, the truth is it's not permanent. Because we all said one year agreed in a hundred years, and we're not gonna live in the same house, right? So how permanent can it really be? The Chafetz Chaim. Scouts do that on week. And it could be a very powerful lesson. Of course, it's only as powerful as how much you internalize it. Mm-hmm. As you a, also have to cook out there. No, so... Uh, so I mean, it's a little 
Well, well, the actual halacha is you're supposed to eat in there. You're supposed to sleep in there. You, ideally, you're supposed to do everything that you do in your house. But the truth is, we yeah, we don't move our oven outside. Right. I don't think anyone does that. Um, Most of the time, you just do it by going camping, and even that is a because Yeah, I'm saying it's it's very it's it's taxing on the body. This is not easy. Holiness is not easy, uh, but it's a perspective that's logical, and. It's the goal of the Jewish people and the goal of humanity. Um, there's a story with the Chavetz Chaim, Rabbi uh, Yisrael Meir Cohen, who died in 1933, one of the great uh, luminaries of the past 200 years. He was once traveling. Oh, I'm sorry, he wasn't traveling. Someone was once traveling and visited him. And this was the leader of the Jewish people, right, who was living in a small little town in Poland, Raden. And his apartment was so sparsely furnished that the guy couldn't believe that someone could live in, in you know in such bare conditions. And this you know kind of wealthy you know traveler on business, he's asked the Chavetz Chaim, he's like, well, you know, well, where's your furniture? So he said to him, well, where's your furniture? That's what I mean. My, my furniture is in Vienna, in my estate. You know, I'm traveling now. He says, well. I'm also traveling. I'm also temporary. When you're temporary, you don't need to worry so much about how things look. You know, I was thinking about this recently. How we we flew with, you know, Baruch Hashem, we have five children, and we went to Canada for Pesach. So how do you get there? You get in a cylinder, a metal cylinder that flies in the sky at 600 miles an hour. But I was thinking, like, so I have my kids there. It's kind of hard to kind of be reflective in a. Uh, in an airplane with five kids. But I had this time, like, I looked around, like, like 18 inches across the aisle is a stranger, and there's more strangers and more strangers and more strangers in this tiny little claustrophobic cylinder of metal. And I was thinking to myself, is there any other situation in the world that you get so close and so intimate with so many strangers? And the only reason why you would do that you would live, you would be in such conditions is because this is not what, this is not some sort of adventure, some sort of, the trip itself is not the goal, it's the destination. When you're focused on the destination, you're willing to suffer with a lot of, you know, with, with, with a lot of conditions that are suboptimal. You see the lines in the TSA now? Oh, they're terrible. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying, you, there's no other reason to ever go to Newark or LaGuardia, Right? Hobbies, pretty good, but uh, but yeah, it's unbelievable. Like we get into this; it's so small. You look around, like you know, I'm I'm a little more than six feet tall. I can't even like you're like you're in the bathroom. If there's like stand like a question mark, you have to arch your back over. It's so small. It's it's horrible. The conditions. You're sharing one toilet with like 50, 70 people. It's crazy what we do, but the, we we put up with it because we're not there. For the trip, that is a means toward the destination. Uh, now, this perspective of 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 what life really is all about is really manifested in every mitzvah. I could go through the mitzvahs. We talk about blessing before food. We acknowledge that God exists. We acknowledge the bigger picture. Um, we have reminders of this in every doorpost. We are at tefillin. All the mitzvahs are there to kind of encourage this perspective of holiness. Comes along Shabbos comes along prayer, 
Well, what's prayer? Prayer is an exercise in holiness. Prayer, you acknowledge the existence of, of God and your limitations of your own physical prowess and your reliance on God. That's what it is. You're saying, God, I need health. God, I need prosperity. God, we need peace. Right? All the things that you're saying, I cannot achieve. Right? I'm limited and I have to rely on God. We demonstrate some of the existence of something beyond that we cannot interact on the physical realm. So to pray, what, what does it mean? It means you acknowledge that the physical realm that we see and we live in, right, that is not all that there is. There's something beyond that. And by doing that, right, you're shifting your focus a little bit away from the physical orientation to the spiritual orientation. Right? Prayer is an exercise of holiness. And what about Shabbos? So, like Steve said, Shabbos, we're told, there's 39 categories of activities that we don't do. Well, what is the commonality of these activities? These are areas where a human exercises their dominion over the world. We control, we're masters of the world in 39 different categories. And these 39 categories are things that we say on one day a week, we're going to stop doing. Like Steve said, these are not laborious work. You would be allowed to move a couch, which could be very heavy, on Shabbos. You wouldn't be allowed to drag it uh, on dirt, but you'd be allowed to move a couch, which is very heavy, from one part of your living room to the other part of the room. That's, that, that'd be very sweaty. Uh, but that's not creative work. That's not a work which demonstrates man's mastery of the world. On Shabbos is a day where we act holy. Right? It's we demonstrate the limitations of our physical existence. We acknowledge the existence of something beyond that. We're not in control. God's in control. Indeed, we could say that the theme of holiness really transcends Shabbos and permeates every part of Jewish life. Indeed, we could say it's maybe the foundational idea, but I think every week we have a holy day. Every week we say for 24 hours, maybe 25 if you want to cover yourself on both ends, 25 hours where we are going to live with holiness we are going to live and deny ourselves the illusion that we are in control. We're going to say, you know, we're going to resume that. It's not like we, 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 it's not like we, we, we leave the corridor. We don't abandon the corridor. We say we're going to temporarily suspend this perception, this myth that the corridor is all that matters. We're going to look towards the future. That's a day, an entire day of holiness. And thus it's very fitting that the first idea we mentioned in the Shabbat prayer is the idea of that Shabbat is a holy day and we can obtain holiness via our observance of Shabbos. There were a few questions here. Yes? I was just thinking of the Ashish Kyle, where some people may not be familiar with that. Does that part of the yeah. system, what you can't do and cannot do? Yes, the Ashish is, is uh, it's, it's taken from uh, the Song of Songs. Um, it's, um, it's a prayer that we say on Shabbat amongst uh, other times. Uh, it's, yes, uh, I would say that some themes are, uh, are overlapping. Of course, you'll find a lot of overlapping themes uh, um, 
all throughout Shabbos and all throughout Jewish life, but it's the kind of the starting point. It's the point of departure for Shabbos as well. Janet, you had something you wanted to say. I was going to say, um, the first time, it's, it's my understanding, that the first time the word fully is used in, in Torah is in relationship to time. Interesting, is that right? Very fascinating. Okay, so so that's so that's holiness. I would say, um, kind of ground level holiness. But I did have one other thing. Go ahead. Say, you know, I'm sitting here listening to this, and and I have in the back of my mind uh, what you had said one day, and that is that the Jewish people have always been small in number. Yes. And that for the foreseeable future, it is our perspective that we will continue to be small in number. And using that as my start point, it makes me wonder how much of an effect the Jewish people can ever really have on the society in which they live. Because we are small in number. Yeah, okay, so so, um, so you're right. We, we are small in number. In fact, during the Roman era, first century, we numbered 8 million people. Now we're maybe a little bit more. Um, if, you, if we had the same growth rate that the Chinese had, we'd also be over a billion Jews. Uh, and indeed, it's forecasted in the Torah that we'll remain small in number. And your question, Janet, is how can we have an outsized effect on the world at large when we're so small? Now, I'll amplify your question, and I'm only going to kind of go on this divergent uh, um, a tangent because I actually had it later on in my notes to talk about this very prescient. Um, and I'll amplify your question by adding another question. If we are going to be the harbingers of Tikkun Olam, if we're going to fix the entire world, uh, you would think we'd be encouraged to be, uh, you know, to, be, to proselytize, to, uh, to, 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 to polemicize our issues, to, to go out into the world and to debate and to encourage and to reach out uh, to other societies, and indeed, we don't have so many mitzvahs like that. But I'll respond to you, to both questions, by saying that if you actually look at history, we actually ha- we're actually very much on our way towards accomplishing that. So ironically, even though we're small in number, and thus our influence should be limited, and not only that, we're not told that we, or we're not actively told to pursue this universal vision. Indeed, there are many mitzvahs that say, don't get too enmeshed in other societies. Yet we do see, and it's undeniable, that the ideas that we have been espousing for thousands of years indeed have become integrated in the rest of the world. So we, have, we, are, we are succeeding, yet the conditions for our success don't seem to have been there in the first place. And the answer is, go ahead. Well, that's a miracle, but, but we are... We, we, we are have made a disproportionate uh, I agree. contribution to the world. Yes, exactly. And, so and we're our, doing it in spite of the fact. So, but the question is why? Like, how, how does that work? And, and I'll, I'll point you to another few phenomena uh, in, uh, in history that, once again, are undeniable and are, 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 are ordained in the Torah, preordained in the Torah, uh, and we could see how those effects um, play out. So we're told that the Jews are going to be a wandering people. We're going to be, never find uh, a permanent home. We're going to travel from place to place. And you look at history. Every place in Europe, we were there, we were kicked out, we were bounced around. 
we kind of never settled anywhere. We were in North Africa, we were in the Near East, we were in Asia Minor, we're all over Europe. And indeed now, like 100 years ago, the center of Jewish life, certainly 200 years ago, was in Europe, and now it's almost gone in Europe. And we're in the United States, and we're in, in, in South America, we're in Israel, back to Israel, of course. And that's foretold in the Torah. So, and that's not kind of our decision, that's sort of God moving the chess pieces, so to speak. And the reason why, uh, according to Jewish philosophy, why we have been so itinerant is because we are going to have to affect the world. And thus, when we spend a few years in a certain society, we influence them. I mean, it's hard to believe that 17 million people can influence 7.5 billion. But it's true. But it's true. I know it's true. But, and, and it has happened. We may not always get credit for it. Oh, certainly not. <laughs> and that, and, and that it doesn't matter. We know. Right, all these, <laughs> all like these facts. For it more than credit. Yes. All, all these, but you know, I, I would argue, maybe this is getting too far off, off, off topic, but I would argue that anti-Semitism, uh, the phenomenon of anti-Semitism, also contributed uh, to, uh, to our number one continued existence and thus our influence. If we just... You know, 2,500 years ago, uh, the Hellenists were successful in, in, in swallowing up the Jewish people like they swallowed up, you know, tens of other uh, uh, societies and civilizations. Well, what would happen to us now? We would have been gone. Yet, you know, there was anti-Semitism and there's conflict. You get too close, there becomes conflict, which pushes the people away and makes integration not possible. This could also be part of God's master plan towards kind of compelling the Jews to fulfill their destiny, even though not explicitly spelling it out to us how we're going to do it. The biggest hitch to our population is the Holocaust, for one thing. Yes, that's the, 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 the most uh, tragic genocide. Yeah. Interesting. I, I just uh, finished a book called Haven, which is about the thousand Jews that were brought to the United States in 19... 19- 43 or so from a, a displaced uh, camp in Italy and they had all this fighting to try and stay in the country they were like out of the quota system they were non-existent they were in Oswego, New York in the port Oswego Oswego? Well, whatever uh, different. <laughs> Thank you. I'm from the north so, okay, so in the in the Ramban in this week's show, we find something very interesting so we, we talk about let's say uh, you know maybe uh, uh, baseline holiness as a perspective of kind of saying goodbye to the physical centric uh, uh, life philosophy and moving towards more of a spiritual perspective. Kind of that, that means kind of you look at the mitzvah. Like, uh, why would God want to deny us the uh, uh, the pleasures of of the physical world? A lot of mitzvahs are, and the answer is because that's to kind of uh, uh, limit our addiction to that to, to that world and that perspective. In the Ramban, in this week's parsha, just because it's, it's 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 timely, he talks about kind of the multiple levels of holiness. If you could say perhaps that the Torah is trying to get us to level one of holiness, which is what we would say the letter of the law of what we can do, what we cannot do, and the, and how that shapes a holy nation. The Ramban says something which is a little more advanced that even the things that are permitted by the Torah, we should withhold from being immersed and, and submerged in that world, in that pleasure. He gives an example. He says it's possible for someone to be a glutton and only eat kosher foods. 
highest standards of kosher certification. Is that what the goal really ought to be? Is that, you know, how we achieve our destiny? You know, where, oh, we're only kosher food, but we eat tons of it and just, and we just, we're word gluttons, you know. Uh, he gives other examples of, of ways that we can kind of navigate around the strict letter of the law but not take the lessons home. And indeed, uh, once we kind of, once, you know, I, I say this is all predicated upon once we achieve the first level of holiness, there's this idea out there that we should be aware of that there's this advanced holiness that we can, that we really ought to strive to, and it's indeed a mitzvah, to become holy even beyond all the other mitzvahs that are going to propel us towards holiness in even the things that are permitted. Let's move on to the next prayer. Uh, the next prayer is after the conclusion of the Amidah of the evening prayer, there is a very interesting prayer that we say that has also a very fascinating history. Uh, in ancient times, the synagogues were in the outskirts of the city. And in the outskirts of a city, at nighttime, it's dangerous. There's no one around. Who knows who's going to be hanging out over there? So uh, what the sages instituted, they instituted these extra prayers to make sure that the latecomers who had to catch up wouldn't be, uh, w- wouldn't be the last to leave. You know, it's interesting, lad, that there's a certain accommodations, people that come late. The, the, the concern was, someone will come late to shul, and they'll spend the whole time catching up. By the time he finishes, everyone already left, and he's all alone, and he's got a lot up. And he locks up, and he's, it's dark, it's nighttime, Right? And he's always all by himself. Everyone already left, and who knows what could happen to him. So the sages instituted into the, both the weekday and the Shabbat prayers, extra prayers that the, you know, that the community says to elongate the prayer services and that just to give more buffer room for people that are latecomers. Very interesting history to this, to the, to the, um, uh, to this prayer. Uh, but this is the prayer that we say. He who was the shield of our forefathers with his word, who resuscitated the dead with his utterance, the holy God who is unequaled, who grants rest to his people on the holy day, holy Shabbos day, for he was pleased with them to grant them rest. Before him we will serve with awe and dread and give thanks to his name every day continually with appropriate blessings. God is grateful, God of grateful praise, master of peace, who sanctifies the Shabbos and blesses the, whole, the seventh day and gives rest with holiness to a people saturated with delight in memory of the work of creation. Of course, there's a lot to unpack there, but the sages pointed out that if you look at the beginning and the end of the prayer, we have a truncated version of prayer itself. The first three blessings of our service are mentioned over here very quickly. We talk about the forefathers, which is a reference to the first blessing, Resetsed to dead is a reference to the second blessing. The holy God is a reference to the third blessing. And then the last three blessings are also mentioned at the end. Before him we will serve with awe, which is the third to last blessing. Give thanks, which is the second to last blessing. And lastly, we talk about the master of peace, which is the final blessing. And in the middle we talk about Shabbos. He gives rest to the people in the holy Shabbos. Once again, holiness, of course. Uh, he was pleased with them to get, grant them rest, and etc. At the end, what I want to look at here very closely is the end of the prayer. 
Master of Peace, who sanctifies the Shabbos and blesses the seventh day and gives rest with holiness to a people saturated with pleasure. The description of the nation as being a people saturated with pleasure is something that demands our investigation. If you told me that we're a people saturated with holiness, or prayer, or Torah, or scholarship, or mitzvahs, or tradition, all those things would be fine. To describe us as a nation saturated with pleasure is interesting. Now, this is not the only time that in the Shabbos prayers that we are described as such. In the morning prayers, there's another uh, uh, line that we say that we are medushne odored, we are replete, we're saturated, we're dripping with pleasure and delight. Now, the fact that we're described as such is interesting, and we have to understand well, that, that seems incongruent, of course. Uh, and also, what does that have to do with Shabbos? Why are we, you know, we don't say that description of us on the Rational Prayers, only on Shabbos, and uh, it seems very foreign uh, on its own merit, but certainly on Shabbos it demands us to try to understand what that means. Okay, so let's start here with an important insight here. The difference between us and our perspective and our life philosophy and our life goals and everyone else is not that everyone else is living for pleasure and we're living for holiness, for prayer, for mitzvahs, for God. No. We're all living for pleasure. All humans are seeking the same thing. We're all in pleasure. The difference is, the only distinction is what sort of pleasure do we want? We are a nation that is saturated with pleasure. However, the pleasure that we want, that we seek, that we try to obtain is more sophisticated, more advanced pleasures. And we can describe the Torah as being a manual for advanced and sophisticated pleasures. And this comes, you know, this is manifest in Shabbos almost more than any of the myths. We'll see how that works. So I want to start with kind of uh, dispelling uh, a common misconception about this idea. Uh, we think of uh, the Jewish religion and certainly other religions. Other religions do this uh, in a very uh, more egregiously. Uh, it's only hinted very subtly in the Jewish religion because indeed it's not true. Um, and that is that there's this idea of we work here, we'll get the payback somewhere else. There's no reward at all for the mitzvahs, for the good deeds, for the sacrifices that we make in this world. There's some other world that we have no evidence for, uh, or or at least we have no uh, eyewitness accounts of, and that's all that we're, 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 we're striving towards. Now, this is partially true, but... There's a very deep insight that we'll find, and we'll we'll see how this is manifested by Shabbos, and that's not entirely true. The venue for this pleasure that we're seeking is not only in the next world. So I want to read a passage here from Ramchal, from Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, in The Path of the Just, 
otherwise called the way of the upright, uh, because these are different ways to try to translate the word Mesilas Yesharu, Mesilat Yesharim, which means Mesilam is a path or a way of Yashar, which means someone who's straight or upright or just. And this is a very famous passage because it's at the beginning of his book. And he outlines kind of a Jewish perspective on life very in very succinct words. And he reads as follows. Once again, we're trying to figure out where the venue is for this pleasure. We'll get to what the pleasure is in a little bit. The foundation of piety and the root of service of God. What's, what is all of service of God? What's it predicated upon? Is a person clarifying and verifying to themselves what is their obligation in their world and towards what goal he should direct his outlook and his ambition in everything that he strives for all days of his life. The foundation of piety and the root of perfect service of God is to clarify what it is we ought to do in life, what it is we should strive for, what it is we try to achieve. Now, what our sages of blessed memory have taught us is that mankind was created only to take pleasure in God and to benefit from the radiance and the delight of His Shechina, of His Divine Presence. For this is the true delight and the greatest pleasure of all pleasures that can possibly exist. Right? The Ramchal is telling us that not all pleasures are created equal. There's basic pleasures, these are the ice cream. There's more advanced pleasures, maybe you love your, you love your kids more than you love your ice cream. So it's, it's a higher level of pleasure. You know, there's happiness, there's contentment, there's a feeling of a, a job well done. There's other different levels of pleasure. Says the Ramchal, we'll see the Ram says it as well, the greatest level of pleasure that we could possibly obtain is this pleasure of God. What does that mean, of course? Good question. This is the true delight and the greatest pleasure of all pleasures that can possibly exist. The true place for this greatest pleasure is the world to come. For that is the world that was created with the design necessary for this purpose. But the path we must traverse to reach this destination is this world. So, and he goes on to describe that we do mitzvahs here and we get paid in Alamaba. Okay. But point number one here is that the Ramchal, who is considered as authoritative when, he taught, when, when talking about Jewish philosophy, he describes the Jewish goal as pursuit of pleasure, which is an insight onto its own right. I'll read it again. What our sages of Blessed Mary have taught us, that mankind was created only to take pleasure in God and to benefit from the, from the radiance of His Shechina, for this is the true delight and the greatest pleasure of all pleasures that could possibly, possibly exist. That's the goal. Now, where is the venue for receiving that pleasure? The true place, I'm continuing to read from the Ramchal, the true place for this greatest pleasure is the world to come, for that is the world that's created with the design necessary for this purpose. So plainly, if you read his words very plainly, you would say that we're here to have pleasure, that's the goal of mankind, and where's the pleasure? Olam next world. However, my grandfather of blessed memory made a very astute and incisive and critical observation of the text as follows. I'll read it again, third time. Sorry for this. What the Blessed may have taught us is that mankind was created only to take 
pleasure of God and the benefit of the radiance of Ashkina. For this is the true delight and the greatest pleasure of all pleasures that can possibly exist. What is it? This is two things. It's delight and a pleasure. Remember that. Hold that thought for a second. The true place for this greatest pleasure is the world to come. So the Ramchal is telling us that, that, that there's this pleasure and delight, which is experiencing God. Then he says the place for this pleasure is in the world to come. Where's the place for this delight? We are told to read the words of Ramchal very critically. If you read that very quickly, you wouldn't maybe notice this discrepancy. But we're told to read it very critically. And we see that he describes this pleasure of God as being multifaceted. He calls it a ta'anug and an idun in Hebrew, right, which they're translating as a delight and a pleasure. And then he says, the place for this pleasure is the world to come. He doesn't mention the delight as being the place as in the world to come. Clearly, the place for the delight is not the world to come, it's here. And indeed, if you had any qualms about accepting that observation as being true, let's look at the Rambam that we mentioned last week. What's the, well, I don't know if we mentioned, we read, we read inside, but... The Ramam talks about the mitzvah of loving God, and he describes it as follows. Mitzvah, and this is when he delineates all the mitzvahs in the book of mitzvahs. Mitzvah number three, he numbers them all in order, is that the Almighty instructed us to love God, and that is obtained by thinking and, uh, and contemplating in the mitzvahs of God, in the Torah of God, in the handiwork of God, until we have an insight, an understanding, and we take pleasure in our understanding with the epitome, with the pinnacle, with the peak, with the acme of pleasure, and that's the mitzvah of love God. If you were to ask the Rambam, how do we obtain, how is it manifest, the mitzvah of loving God? It says by having the greatest pleasure that could possibly have. Where are we commanded to fulfill the mitzvah of loving God? In which world? Here. <coughs> Clearly, the two titans of Jewish philosophy, for us, the Rambam and the Ramchal, agree that in this world, where we're here today, not some other world, who knows, when we get back to, yeah, no one's ever come back and told us the story, or well, some people have, but who knows what to believe, we haven't seen it, there's no empirical evidence. No, forget about that for a second. Here, on planet Earth, we can achieve this highest level of pleasure, and that's our goal in life. Earlier, <clears throat> Rabbi, you seem to be separating the words delight and pleasure. I mean, can't the, aren't they really basically synonyms? That's well, maybe the, that's a good question as to what would be the difference. Yeah, I don't. I mean, True, but I, I'm only I'm only I'm only um, making a distinction because the Ramchal himself made that distinction. Okay. I'm just I'm just working within his framework, and this is an observation observation that my grandfather made in his book that he published in 1986, the year I was born, uh, on page 567. <laughs> yeah, I have. Uh, and it's a very critical uh, observation because it's, it might not sound as groundbreaking for us here, uh, but this is a transformative idea. It really is. Because there is uh, a tendency for people to think 
that our life as Jews, and indeed other religions as well, is being one of martyrdom. We'll sacrifice this world, we'll give up, we'll yield pleasures here for pleasures in a greater world. And indeed, that's partially true. And he does, he does talk about the world to come as being the locale of pleasure. However, it's not entirely true. It's still possible to tap in to spiritual pleasure on this world. It's possible, and the stress is on the possible because it's not probable. But there is a way to do it, and we'll talk about how to do it. And this idea is a life-changing idea. And indeed, when we talk about sacrifices that we make, ah, oh, I'll give up the shellfish, because the Torah says, right? I'm, 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 uh, or I'll give up, I don't know, uh, the cheeseburgers, because I'm willing to do one for God. Right? That, that, that's what we think. I'm, that's, that's a very common kind of point of departure of the experience that we have as you know, body-centric humans encountered with Torah. Okay, it's true, I'll grant it that, and I'm willing to make a sacrifice. That's what we think. But this idea changes everything. We're not sacrificing anything. Indeed, we're sacrificing simplistic pleasures, but really the goal is not to have less pleasures, to have more pleasure. It's not to have less pleasure so we get pleasure some other place. It's to have more pleasure here right now, which is, as I said, a very transformative idea. But we still haven't explained how this works, what this pleasure is all about, how we get there, how we connect all the dots, and of course, what does this possibly have to do with Shabbos? Why are we revisiting this idea? Why are we describing the Jewish nation as a nation dripping, saturated in pleasure on Shabbos? You know, just as an aside, as I was preparing this, I'm realizing this is not an easy class. Because I feel like every idea that we're talking, we're really trying to build it up from the bottom up. Like we're, like we're trying to lay, lay the groundwork and pour the concrete and build the foundation and like the payoff it kind of comes out. But I feel like we matured as a class. We can do it. But if, 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 it's, if it's a hard time stringing this thing together, I, it, I understand it. It's, if, 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 that, if that feeling, if that sentiment is being felt in the audience, uh, it's, it's true. You know, this is not, a, we're, we're, because these are all central ideas, I felt that we could have done holiness as its own class and we could do pleasure as its own class, maybe even a series of classes. And the other thing that I have upcoming, if we get to it in time, we, should, we, could, have done, we could do that as an, its own class as well. But we're now deep in the throes of trying to understand what, you know, how, it, how is Judaism the manual, how is a Torah a pleasure manual? It doesn't seem to exactly fulfill, you know, the, you know, the, it, you know it doesn't, seem to be guiding us to ha- how to have pleasures. It seems, you know, to be the opposite even. They guide us to withhold from pleasure. And that maybe we'll go with if that promises us greater pleasure somewhere else. Fine. But now we're talking the Rambam and the Ramchal. Both of them agree that we're talking about pleasure over here. Well, well what's the, how, how do we do that? And why is that so hard for us to, to, to see? So I want to make another deep dive here into the Rambam in his introduction to Mishnah, where he gives us a treatise on reward and punishment. The Rambam was, uh, you know, would frequently do this, where he would, he would stop the tape, he would stop the discussion of the matters at hand, and give us background information. So in his book, which is the commentary in Mishnah, where he writes a commentary in all, of, all 63 books of Mishnah, he gives several introductions to certain sections of the Mishnah, 
One of them is the uh, chapter in the end of Sanhedrin that talks about reward and punishment. So he gives a very long introduction, and I, I know I've encouraged people to read it beforehand. I'll do that again. But we're going to take a small a few sections of it and try to analyze and see what he says because he really zones in. The, whatever we're talking about right now about pleasure is really a very long essay that the Rambam himself uh, spells out in detail. But he says as follows. This is picked out. This is a selected excerpt from what he says. You should know that just like a blind man cannot sense, cannot image color, and a deaf person cannot experience sound, so too bodies cannot attain spiritual pleasures. Spiritual pleasures do not come within our experience at all. The delights of the spiritual world are unknown in this material world. We, our bodies, enjoy only bodily pleasures, which come to us through our physical senses, such as the pleasures of eating, drinking, sexual intercourse. Other levels of pleasure are not present to our experience. We neither recognize them, nor do we grasp them at first thought. They only come to us after great searching. We, as we mentioned, begin life as a body-centric entity. If you're a body, you cannot have a spiritual pleasure. Thankfully, we are bodies, but we also have a soul. And if we want to partake in soul-like pleasures, we can only do that with our soul. Thus, in order to become capable, to be primed, to be ready, to be a vessel of physical, of spiritual pleasure, we have to find a way of partaking in that. We have to expose our soul, thus we can encounter soul-like pleasures with the soul. When we become soul-centric, we become primed, capable, able to have soul-like pleasures. Now, soul-like pleasures, they're a different realm. And like Dharma says, that it's, it, at first... You know, at first glance, at first thought, it doesn't make any sense to us, you know, because we're thinking from the body, the body-centric lenses, it doesn't make any sense. The pleasure of God, that sounds so out there, right? Well, that, that doesn't sound enticing. It's not appealing. It's not titillating. Well, what does that even mean? The pleasure of God? Who wants, you know, that, does, that, that sounds like, oh, that sounds like so boring, Right? Uh, and that's because, indeed, to our body, there's no avenue, there's no touch point between our body and our body's pleasures and our body's senses to those kinds of pleasures. There's no touch point whatsoever. If you want to experience God with your body, like we talked about with holiness, the only way to connect to God is if you become, on the same wavelength, you become holy as well. The only way to experience the pleasure of God is if you become capable of experiencing those kinds of pleasures. But the payoff is fantastic. Why? Because the soul pleasures are much greater than the, than the, than the, than the, uh, than the physical pleasures. They're, different, they're a different class. Back to the Rambam. We live in a material world and therefore are able to achieve only inferior and discontinuous pleasures. Spiritual pleasures are eternal. They last forever. They never break off. Between these two kinds of pleasures, there's no similarity of any sort. There's no commonality. It's like, it's like the ice cream and something much more advanced, much more sophisticated, which... To a child, you offer a child an ice cream or any kind of sophisticated pleasure. 
like even a steak, right? Like a nice, you know, medium rare steak. That's like an adult pleasure, right? The child, all they want, they want a hot dog, right? But they don't, you don't get it. You can't talk to the child, right? I want the hot dog. Give me the chicken fingers. Give me, right? Because that is, even in, even in the body pleasures, there's kind of very, you know, kind of, it's very sweet. Like, like yeah, candy. My kids today, oh, man. They went to shul yesterday. They came to the shul. I said to them, okay, in the shul is all these candy men. People giving out candies, which I guess in other, uh, un, under other circumstances you tell the kid, don't take candies from strangers. But in the shul, like, there's a whole bunch of candy men, and the kids are always stockpiling candies. I said to them, listen, I don't want you guys to just eat candies all day. When you get candy, come give it to me. Put it in my pocket. And then we'll have it, we'll parse it out. So every 10 minutes, another kid comes up to me and says, okay, I'll hold it for me. My pockets were full of candy. <laughs> and I, I kept my word. I wasn't going to throw them out. You know, fair is fair. So I, we gave it to them, like, periodically. But they have this one candy. Uh, it looks like a, uh, like a little spaceship. Uh, with little holes on top, like a salt shaker, and you twist the bottom, and this blue goo emerges from each one of these little holes. And the kids love it. And they slather it all over themselves. And it's, and it's the most disgusting thing for, for an adult, right? But for a kid, that is the most pleasure you could possibly have. So this morning, I, like, the kids, like, the, their entire faces are blue. All of them, because they share, right? And they're twisting these things, and this goo just like emerges. Disgusting, right? For the kids, it's pleasure. And to us, we have, you know, we're all cringing because, like, ugh, like, ugh, and grinding the teeth. Oh, man, it's disgusting. But for kids, that's pleasurable, right? We, you know, we graduated from those pleasures. We have higher pleasures. But to the child, it doesn't make any sense to us. To, to them, the fact that you would want a steak over the hot dog. It doesn't make any sense to them. And indeed, in our life, we're also children, and it doesn't make sense to us, the pleasure of God. All we want is our physical pleasures. You know, we're exactly like the kids. I'm not quite getting this, because you say pleasure, we can't get soul pleasure here. But... After... Um, Go ahead. I get a lot of pleasure coming to these classes and other classes I go to. Is that a, a is that not a soul pleasure? I would agree to you, hundred percent. So if you remember, the Ram gave it a little caveat at the end. He says other levels of pleasure are not present in our experience. We need to recognize, grasp them at first thought. This they come to us only after great searching. And you ask yourself, okay, we have what uh, 15, 20 people come to our classes every every Sunday. Where's everyone else? They're watching the cartoons, right? Or they're in bed. They're engaging in other forms, other pursuits of pleasure. And you tell people, I'm sure you guys have had it, like, what do you do Sunday mornings? I wake up really early, right, relatively. And I come, hear a rabbi talk about Torah for an hour and a half. People are like, oh my gosh, I'd rather... How painful is this? uh, You know, that's what they're thinking. But because... You know, and, and this hopefully is a pleasurable experience, but it's not an easy pleasure that kids can't, you can't experience because it it's a little more sophisticated. You know, we're, we're doing intellectual pursuits. We're asking questions. We're analyzing. We're thinking. We're, you know, we're pro- it's, it's a more advanced pleasure. 
it's attainable, possible to have it, but it requires more. So yes, uh, I agree with you. You're 100% right. Um, it is obtainable. It is attainable and obtainable. Could this be more of the delight than the pleasure? Yeah, what this I would say is delight. It's the, it's the delight that we have in this world, right? But you know, even different adults would find a different spiritual pleasure. And, and, and sometimes they're hard to explain to children, right? Yeah. And listen to the Ramam says to here. to another adult. Exactly. Like I said, you guys would go and say, an amazing class of Torah for an hour and a half. We listen to the rabbi talk. I'd rather shoot myself. And so someone will respond. I'd rather, I'd rather have someone claw my fingernails off. That's what someone would say, right? But we're having a good time. This is, this is fun. This is pleasure. But to, to, to the child, it sounds like an absolute torture session. Listen to the Ramam again here. People who choose to purify themselves will get there. Will reach the spiritual pleasure. Now what happens when you reach the spiritual pleasure, they will neither experience bodily pleasure nor will they want it. They will resemble a powerful king. He would hardly want to go back to playing ball with children as he did before he became king. Such games attracted him when he was a child and was able to understand the real difference and was unable to understand the real difference between playing ball and royal power. Like children, we now praise and glorify the delights of the body and do not understand the lights of the soul. Indeed, like even as adults, we're still children because we still, yes, while we're not actual children who want to eat the nasty goo, but we, we advance from that. We don't want that anymore. As you move on to a different pleasure that's a total, it's much greater, much more sophisticated, you lose interest in the more minor ones. The Ram says, what happens to someone who exposes themselves to this whole world of spiritual pleasures? And by the way, how does it say we get there? We purify themselves. The only way to get that is become a soul. The bodies cannot experience that. The more soul-like we become, the more capable we are of experiencing soul-like pleasures. Once we do that, our interest in the physical pleasures starts to wane and diminish. And indeed, in this, now, let's go back to where we started. We are a nation that is saturated in pleasure. Amidushne onik. Saturated in pleasure. And you look at us, and the untrained eye, like, ah, the synagogue, and prayer, and tefillin, and mitzvahs, it sounds like just hassles. Start, you know, I talked to you about, you know, yeshiva students who spend 12 to 15 hours a day studying Talmud. You know? So to some people, that sounds like, the mo- like torture, real torture. And by the way, the first time you do it, it'll be torture for anyone. Because it, it really pushes you. So your eyes glazed over, and your ears. You know, eyes. No, your eyes not glazed over. Your brain gets glazed over. <laughs> and you can't process it all. yeah, but but this is advanced pleasure. It's it's high level pleasure, and once you get that, a lot of the things. You know, I I don't watch television, right? But whenever we're in like. Um, when we travel, we stop up in a hotel. The kids love watching the cartoons, whatever. I flip around, and I usually end up watching golf, whatever. But the average... You don't watch the news? Never. Absolutely never. Well, you're very well informed on this. Well, there's, other, there's other ways to get to the news. We'll tell you about that in a little bit. But... Uh, <laughs> so, 
what's when I when I watch when I put on like I flip around like nothing interests me. I'm not saying that I'm so much a little bit, a little bit. A little bit. I know, but the content doesn't interest me. It doesn't interest me. It, it's boring. I, there are some things, I'm saying there, are, there may be a few exceptions, but like the people that watch four or five hours of, the average American adult like watches four or five hours of television a day. It's so... So do children, by the way. Yeah, and to me, it's so astonishing that there could be five hours worth of, of material. to. I have things that interest me, of course. But I'm just saying like it's possible... You know, to 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 graduate and things that not not excite not excite you anymore. Like, I, I would have nothing. To, I, sometimes I like watching little sports, you know. But even that, how much can you take? Yeah, and it, it's not that interesting. Well, I know you 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 had to DVR the uh, playoff games. <laughs> yeah, that's right. After the shot, <laughs> that, remember were, that, huh? <laughs> Which is great. It's only half hour. You get only the highlights, right? Well, that's true. But and I'm saying, and I'm sure you have experienced that things that interested you when you were younger, and then they're not so exciting anymore, because you we move on to other things, and you've been in conversations. People talk about things, and like they're all oh, talking about this, and you know, people talking about some, you know, like talking about like uh, uh, fashion or things like that. Like it, it's so, it's so boring. Like, like because if you like ideas. And you like intellectual ideas, and you like argumentation of, of, of things that really matter, and like, and then you go back to talking about you know what someone wore at the Met Gala. No, but fashion—it's so art. boring. Fashion is art. Yeah, okay, fine, maybe, but I'm saying the point is is that we we move on, we move on, and we graduate to other pleasures. But there are educational things on TV. Yeah, Not that's true. Uh, what, what's the name? Kardashian. Yeah. I know, but my, my, even when there's something educational, I need it faster. So when I, when I like to watch a YouTube video, there's, the, there's, a, there's an option to make it at like two times as fast. So I get the fa- information fast, and that's it. Like I want the information. Like I don't, you know, it's too slow. The pace is too slow. The words get blurred. Yeah, I, you can parse it together. You know what I like? I'll tell you what I like, guys. Once we're on the side, once we're on this conversation, I like uh, I like learning about the world. The world, and I feel like anytime I learn about nature or the world, you learn about God, really. And like when I when we found out last week that there's a trillion species out in the world, that is fascinating. It's unbelievable. Like what a world we have! What a world the Almighty made for us! Unbelievable. You know and. I saw uh, uh, an, uh, recently uh, a Gan- Gannet, is that how it's pronounced? G-A-N-N-E-T? Huh? Yeah. How do you pronounce it? Oh, it's a US certain news, bird? Yeah. No, it's a bird. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> There's a bird that they eat fish. How do they eat fish? They become like kamikazes. Yeah. Seagulls, are, seagulls do that. And they fly like a like a pencil dive at ninety miles an hour into the water. They travel thirty feet into the water. They snatch a fish, and they come and eat it. 
Isn't that unbelievable? The seagulls don't go that way. Somehow. They, they just do it on the surface. Yeah, and you have a lot of examples, by the way, of animals that have abilities that are, that are unique to that species. That's amazing. And it's amazing, but it also it, it makes the idea of this all evolving without God as ludicrous. Because you have like the electric eel where there's no, there's no, like it, it has to have, have evolved on its own because it's, it's not like it, it built upon existing species because we don't have any other species that have this electric, uh, you know, electric um, um, uh, means of defense. And you find many, many other things, like it, that's a way to learn about God. And to me, like that's, that's fascinating. Either way, sorry. Uh, back to topic ahead. I didn't, I didn't know you were a golf fan. I, I'm not. But well, you say you watch golf. I like watching golf sometimes. I would rather watch paint dry. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't, I don't watch golf. But, uh, we saw three murderers and somebody get punched out because she done something wrong in the film station. Oh, it wasn't a Trump rally? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Actually, I, I saw what he was talking So, uh, back to the topic at hand. Jews are a nation that are saturated with pleasure. Of course, to the untrained eye, it looks like a bunch of hassles. A lot of prayer, a lot of study, a lot of mental exercise, a lot of things we cannot do. And indeed, you know what? You look at the child, the child playing ball, and you say to him, okay, look at the king. Who do you think is having more fun? You playing with your ball, the king. You know, deep into national and international affairs. To the child, the king, what he's doing, looks like really hassle. It's all, it's all hassles and pain. You know, all the child wants is, is the ball, is the PlayStation, is the more, you know, is the, is the pleasure that, is, is, you know, the, that they can understand and experience. The Jewish nation has taken the more difficult path towards pleasure. Indeed, it's more difficult. We don't start off with having an understanding of that pleasure. But of course, it's vastly more, more rewarding in the end. That's pleasure. How does this relate to Shabbos? And why are we constantly mentioning it on Shabbos? So I, I say that this uh, idea, this perspective, this Weltanschauung of Judaism as pursuit of sophisticated pleasure is manifested in Shabbos almost more than any other uh, place. How so? The Talmud tells us as follows. Three things are a measure of the world to come. You remember? We spoke about this at great length about a year and a half ago, two years ago. Three things are a measure of the world to come. Shabbos, the sun, and going to the bathroom. We see going to the restroom. Barney has never been to Bucky's. I never heard of it. You gotta check it out. You can go experience the world to come. (laughs) Now, when we talk about the world to come, as we're told, the the world to come is a place of pleasure. Right? This world is also a place of pleasure. But the three things are a measure of the world to come. Three things in, in this world have an echo, a feeling, a taste of the world to come, and that are these three things. And one of them is Shabbos. How is Shabbos made of the world to come? How is Shabbos some sort of transcendental experience where we experience the world to come? So I'll introduce you to another state in the Talmud. So that's in the Talmud in Brachos, in the book of Brachos 57b. 
And then in the book of Beitzah, 16a, we find a very enigmatic passage. Amar Reb Shimon Lakish, says Rabbi Shimon, the son of Lakish, Nishama Yeseira, an extra soul. A man gets an extra soul on the eve of Shabbos. Ulamosa Shabbos, and after Shabbos is over, Notlim Osa Himena, it is taken away from him. That's the end of the Gemara. What does this mean? What is this extra soul? Uh, do we usually have only one soul in one body, and now we have two souls in one body? Uh, is it harder to die on Shabbos? Because you have to take both souls out of the person? Is this only a temporary soul? What does it mean, a temporary soul that we get injected, you feel it? Do you feel like on Shabbos, suddenly you're like, you're more alive? You're more soul-like? And then suddenly, Shabbos, like, something sapped away from you after Shabbos is concluded? So that's, of course, some questions we have to ask. But then we look at Rashi, and we find even more questions, more problematic statements. What is this extra soul? How would you describe an extra soul? Well, so spiritual. So maybe you would say, a man has a, more, a greater tendency towards spirituality on Shabbos than they have during the rest of the week. It's better to study Torah, to do mitzvahs, to pray. That's what I would have thought, right? How would you, if you were Rashi, right? Rashi, remember, Rashi's going to explain to you in the most simplest way. Rashi's always going to say what it means. It's not going to get too advanced. You have an extra soul on Shabbos. That's what the Talmud says. How would Rashi, what would you guys say? If we had to just telegraph what Rashi, what we think Rashi would say. That's what I would say. I would say Rashi says, on Shabbos, you're more spiritual, you have, you have an extra soul. It's as if your, your soul is more in control, your body is, is supplanted, your body is demoted. That's what I would have said. Is that fair? Everyone says it's fair. Excellent. This is what Rashi says. Expansiveness of your heart to rest, to have joy, and to be open wide, to eat and to drink, and to not get disgusted. Disgusted. Shabbos is a day, you have an extra soul, you have this expansiveness, capacity for joy and pleasure, and eating and drinking and delighting, and not getting sick. You have an extra steak, and more food, and more meat, and more chicken, and more Shabbos soup, and more kudrol, everything on Shabbos. An extra soul? That's how you describe a soul? Isn't a soul about soul-like pleasures? Isn't a soul about spiritual pleasures? Why is Rashi telling us that an extra soul is manifested by our extra capacity to have another piece of schnitzel and not get sick? Normally, you can't out after one plate of chalant. Now you have ten. Just eat. Does that sound like a soul-like activity? Listen to this insight, guys. Well, we are granted an extra soul on Friday. What does that mean? That extra soul is not that we suddenly have two souls in one body. Rather, what it means is, is that our body becomes like a soul. What is this extra soul? It's not we have our anatomy changes, our physiology changes. No. Immersed in holiness. Our body and our body's pursuits become spiritual. Our body still wants the physical. But on Shabbos, that's elevated to being spiritual as well. Even the soul, <coughs> even the soul 
is happy with the body's pursuit of pleasure on Shabbos. If you all remember, the Rambam told us prior that the reason why the, the, we have a hard time having spiritual pleasure is because we're bodies, body-centric. The body cannot experience the soul's pleasure. The body can experience the body's pleasure. But the soul takes no part in that. You know, when we do a mitzvah, it's a spiritual activity, our body resists. Our body feels awkward doing it. You know, when you say, if you were to shake a lulav, you know, the one thing that you hope more than anything else is that none of your work colleagues see you doing this. You know, it looks weird. You, look, you feel goofy doing it. Uh, because our bodies are antithetical to mitzvahs. You know, when you don't eat for a half a day, you feel hungry. If you don't study Torah for 12 hours, you feel perfectly fine. It depends. Depends what? If you're, if you're really into studying Torah all your life and you're really doing that, you, you either feel guilty or... <laughs> That's right. That's how we start off life, right? We start off life being very distant from a spiritual sense, and thus the spiritual agenda doesn't kind of compute to us. You know, we don't feel missing anything. And that's why it's, it's the up, upside-down world. And that's why this Olam is, is everything is inverted. Whereas spiritual activities are natural and physical activities are unnatural. And spiritual activities, spiritual pleasures, is all that matters to us. We're told Shabbos is a measure of the world to come. Shabbos is a little bit like the world to come. On Shabbos we've got an extra soul. On Shabbos our body can do mitzvahs as well. Our bodies feel perfectly natural, perfectly normal for our bodies to have a sumptuous meal. It's perfectly congruent for our bodies to want to drink a glass of wine. Right? We're told in Shabbos to have a festive meal, to drink wine, to drink alcohol, to take a nap, to engage in conjugal activities, to spend time with our family. If I told you this, all right, I'm going to make you a list of activities that you should do. You would say, oh, I can get behind that, right? <laughs> yeah. It's mitzvahs for the body suddenly. Yeah, suddenly, the, We're not shaking the lulav. It's not like our soul is involved and our body is distant. Our body is removed from this celebration. It's just for our soul. This is for our bodies as well. We have two souls. We have our soul that wants to do it, and we have our body that also wants to do a mitzvah. I was about to ask, you know, and I think you answered it with the conjugal. I mean, so so sexual relations is oh, yeah, completely... It's a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah. It's encouraged. Okay. Which, 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 I'm saying, which, which is bizarre. Like, since when is the Torah telling us to have, to pursue physical pleasures? That's the mitzvah, the mitzvah of Shabbos. And that's why Shabbos is an extra soul. It's not, it's not like we have two souls in one body. We have one body, one soul, but they're both soul-like. They both want to do a mitzvah. We have a harmony between our body and soul. Both of them want to do mitzvahs. Yeah, I was going to say, Yom Kippur you're not supposed to have. Because it, that's right. It's self-denial. Right, so, yes. Okay. Well, yeah, we'll talk about Yom Kippur uh, at some other time. But yeah, but yeah but this, we're talking about regular Shabbos. That's right. And indeed, if, this is a measure of the world to come. When you do a mitzvah on Shabbos, you find no resistance. You don't feel awkward at all. It feels normal, right? Because your body is like, hey, this, this is something I would do regardless of whether or not it was a mitzvah. I would want to do this. We get the alcohol, the festive meals. We're told we have to have meat and chicken, some sort of 
uh, uh, like to have fancier foods on Shabbos, right? There's a mitzvah, it's explicitly spelled out, to, to engage in conjugal activities on Shabbos and to take a nap. Isn't that, how wonderful is that? And to spend time with our families. And this is an example of how we can get a taste of what the world to come is like. In the world to come, all mitzvahs feel like that. Shaking the lulav doesn't feel awkward. That feels perfectly natural. Because then, when our soul is dominating, that is normal. That is natural. And Torah study is, is, is something that we would crave and yearn for in a spiritual world. Just like our bodies on Shabbos yearn for the spiritual, for, for the spiritual which is indeed uh, overlapping uh, uh, with the physical as well. Indeed, if we follow the Torah's guidelines, what happens? We become more soul-like, and thus the receptors of the soul to experience the soul-like pleasures are exposed. And thus we continue to experience high-level pleasures, not just on Shabbos, but all the time. So if you want to know what life is like for someone who becomes more and more progressively more and more soul-like, how do you feel like what, it's bec- what, what, is, what is it like to experience life when you're primarily a soul? Well, look at Shabbos. You have one soul and one soul. Two souls. Your body is now a soul. Okay, well, what's it like? Oh, yeah, heck yes, right? Where do I sign, right? You, you don't sign on Shabbos, sign after Shabbos. But <laughs> all the mitzvahs are delightful, are wonderful, are exciting, are are things that you want to do anyhow. Your, your body is a soul on that day. You want to experience those pleasures regardless. And that's a slight measure of the world to come. That's what a little bit was like. Where, how can I experience life? What's life, life like for those teens? Right? We, we said we're children, right? We don't look at spiritual pleasures as being something that we want to, we want to strive for. I'll get to in a second, John. But if we want to know what's it like, how can we spend one day as a king? Right? Or how can we feel what it's like for the adults that have adult-like pleasures? We have that on Shabbos. Shabbos is the day where we're temporarily, we're given an extra soul, the body becomes a soul, the body's pursuits align with the soul's pursuits, and thus it feels perfectly natural and desirous for us to seek to do mitzvahs. Yes. You can't do anything on a growler stomach anyway. Once you get that body all set up and it's happy, it certainly will go right into the studies because you have no other... That's right, and that's what we described. We described the, the, we described this world as being a means, as being something that we have to do toward its fuel. Like we talk about the matzah, the matzah is a fuel towards having a successful uh, spiritual pursuit in life. So yes, of course, eating and engaging in the physical world can be a mitzvah in its own right, even during the week, because if it's done with the proper perspective of it being a tool rather, rather than being an end onto its, its own. It's a means rather than an end. That would be a mitzvah indeed, 100%. Lastly, I want to try to finish this because I don't want to do a part two. Well, I do want to do a part two, but uh, um, there's another very fascinating insight we find in the Shabbat prayers. I'll do this uh, and we'll finish before 11.30. Uh, the Talmud tells us, and we kind of mentioned this idea a little bit earlier, so we could go with, through it a little quicker. The Talmud tells us as follows. This is an idea that's very famous. Uh, this is the source of that idea, and that's the idea of a 6,000-year world. The Jewish calendar starts ticking from Adam, 
Adam is the beginning of the Jewish calendar. What happened before Adam is not important for the context of what we're talking about. And it describes the world of 6,000 years from Adam. Right now we're at the end of the 6,000 years. We're about in the 58th century since Adam. 6,000 years as the world declares the Talmud, 2,000 years of chaos, 2,000 years of Torah, 2,000 years of Mashiach, of Messiah. This is a description of the process of tikkun olam in Jewish history and the various markers of transformations in Jewish life. We talked about it already prior. We start off this world, it's, it's a broken world. It's a broken world that we need to fix. It's broken because God is not in the picture. The spiritual world is distant from us. We are body first and soul second. And these three eras are three steps in transforming the world towards being totally perfect, towards being complete. We have three eras, three epochs. Epochs spelled E-P-O-C-H-C-H, right? Uh, And we also have three luminaries that represent these three eras. Of course, we have Abraham. Abraham was brought the world out of chaos, who, told, who introduced the idea of God. We have the idea of Moses, which is that 2,000 years, the 2,000 year period of Torah, where Moses consolidated the efforts of bringing the world towards its profession in the Jewish people via the Torah. And we have the idea of Messiah, which is the culmination of it all, which is the idea of universal acceptance of these principles. Shabbos is a day where we incorporate all these three steps. With Shabbos prayers, we, we highlight, we mention these three themes. We also, by the way, have three meals in Shabbos. The three meals correspond to these three uh, ideas. The idea number one of recognition of the idea of God. God created the world. There is a God out there. He created the world. He communicates to us via the Torah. Right? He communicates to us, primarily the Jewish people. And lastly, this idea is for everyone, where the entire world has to know about God and uh, the culmination of this destiny. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, thirdly, or fourthly, the idea of the three Jewish temples. We have two temples that are destroyed, and we have a third temple that we're waiting to build. It corresponds to this idea. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob corresponds to this as well. The three Shabbat prayers highlight these three eras. Back to the evening prayers. You sanctify the seventh day for your name, the conclusion of the creation of heaven and earth. We read, the heaven and the earth were finished, and all their legions, and the seventh day God completed. We're talking about creation. We're talking about God's handiwork. We look at the world and we see God's fingerprints all over it. We recognize and accept and have a testament to God's Existence. When we say the prayer of the Kiddush, we all stand. We stand because we are testifying to God's creation. We're, we are following the footsteps of Abraham to bring the idea into this world. There is an idea called God, and that's true, and that's a reality, and that is an end of chaos, of emptiness, of darkness, where that idea was totally obscured. Well, once that idea is brought into the world, what else could be missing? Right? We acknowledge God's existence. If there is a creator, what else are we lacking? The, the answer is that we're lacking a relationship. 
if God exists, but there's no interplay between us and God, then we're still distant from Him. We may acknowledge the existence of God, but that does nothing to foster a relationship. We have the second era. What, what do we have? Suddenly, the Almighty is communicating to us. We have Torah. Torah is God's communication to us. We have the experiences of Mount Sinai and the Exodus, where God is actually engaging with us on an individual level. And by the way, you know where else that's, that's mentioned? In the prayers as well. We kind of graduate from being only uh, witnesses and testifying towards God's existence, and now we start talking about God communicating to us directly. I want to make a subtle, uh, a subtle analysis of another Shabbat prayer. This is from the Kiddush prayer. Listen to this very critically. This is the Kiddush prayer. Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his mitzvahs, with his mitzvahs. We're talking to God in third person. Took pleasure in us, and with love and favor gave us his holy Shabbos as a heritage, a remembrance of creation. In the first part, we're talking about in God, so to speak, in third person, right? It's hidden. It's Him. It's not, we're not talking directly to Him. And that's in remembrance of creation. Creation and our acknowledgement of creation does not foster a relationship. We have to upgrade that. For that, we continues the prayer. For that day is the prologue of the whole, to the holy convocations, a memorial of the exodus from Egypt. Now we invoke the Exodus, the second level of this revelation. For us, did you choose? Suddenly God, we're talking to him first person, you choose, first person, so to speak, not person, obviously, first entity. You chose us. Now we're your nation. There's a personal relationship, and we're talking to you directly. And us, did you sanctify from all the nations? Now we're suddenly, we're, our, we're his nation. We have his Torah, and we're talking to him directly. And your holy Shabbos, with love and favor, did you give us as a heritage? The change between the first and second era, between God being an idea and God being a relationship that we have, is manifested in this prayer. We talk about creation, yes. God's handiwork is on display, but he's not communicating to us. We talk about the Exodus, the next level. Suddenly he's engaged with us on, on an individual level, on a national level. We're his nation, he, correspond, he, he communicates with us, and we talk to him directly. Indeed, the words of Deuteronomy chapter 6, where we talk about who is a nation that can be close to God. We become a nation that's close to God with the Exodus. And, of course, the ensuing uh, miracles and the revelations, of course, The epitome of it being at Mount Sinai. When we look at the morning prayers of 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 Shabbat, it's all about this intermediary stage. It's if if the evening prayers are about creation, the middle prayers are about revelation at Sinai, where we become His nation, Jewish nation. And I quote: "This is once again. This is the, the, the 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 middle part of the prayer." Moses rejoiced in, rejoiced in the gift of his portion, that you called him a faithful servant, a crown of splendor you placed on his head when he stood before you on Mount Sinai. We're invoking, of course, Mount Sinai, the Exodus. He brought down two tablets of stone in his hand in which you inscribed the observance of Shabbos. And so is written in his Torah. And quotes the verse. 
And then it says as follows, You did not give it, Hashem, our God, to the nations of the land, nor did you make it the inheritance of the worshippers of graven idols. Right? It's for us. Right? This middle stage is where the Jewish people and the Jewish ideas gets consolidated in a nation. We don't yet find that the idea is getting universal uh, uh, traction. Indeed, you can almost map out the history of monotheism by Abraham introducing it, and then 2,000 years of the Jewish people being very insular, wherein it's, it's just our nation. No one else knows of it. It's our family. It starts off with an individual, family, a tribe, ultimately a nation, with a Torah, and 2,000 years of it gaining no traction in the world. It's for us. That's the intermediate, the intermediate prayer. And it's intent the uncircumcised shall not abide, for to Israel, your people, have you given it in love, to the seed of Jacob, whom you have chosen. By the way, Jacob, not Abraham, right? Abraham had seed that is not part of the Jewish people. The people that sanctify the Shabbat, the seventh, they will all be satisfied and delighted from your goodness. Okay. Right. This Shabbos is a mitzvah that we have. It's, a, it's, it's, it's the Jewish people. When we sing Shalom Aleichem, the, uh, the prayer that we say at, uh, when we get home, the last part, the last stanza is Tzaytchem Shalom. We're talking to the angels. When first we, 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 we say peace unto you, the angels. Come into our home. Give us a blessing. And the last stanza is get out of here. Imagine you have angels in your house. Does that sound like hospitality? Would Abraham do that? And the answer is that no. Shabbos is between us and the, and the Almighty. That's it. Even the angels cannot partake in it. It's between us and God. Right? There's this idea, this theme in Jewish life, in, this, in, in Jewish history, where we are the nation of God, we're close to God, we develop a relationship with God, we have the Torah of God, and thus it's manifested in Shabbos as well. However, is the world complete with just the Jews knowing about God? Absolutely not. The, we have not achieved our perfection until everyone ceases to live in error. Let's look at the third prayer of Shabbat. You are one, and your name is one. Which, that, if those words echo or ring a bell, we talk about Bayom Mahu on that day in the future. God will be one and His name will be one. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. That is a prayer towards the future where God will be one. There will be universality in acceptance of God. And even then, you are one and your name is one. And who is like your people, Israel? One nation on earth. What we talk about, even in the future, where everyone accepts that, yeah, we see we're very much along the path towards achieving that uh, over this last 2,000 years, we're now 1,700 years into it, of the world accepting the, the premises of Abraham as being true, even then we will retain our special status as being God's nation. When we pray on Shabbos, throughout the whole prayer, it's not just individual prayers, the themes that we're revisiting, the three elements, the three revelations of faith that we have in our lives, number one, the creation where we could still experience or we could still deduce God from his handiwork, from, his, from you know, the way Abraham did it. And then we have the higher level where we are able to uh, experience revelation of God at Sinai as a nation, but also to have that con- continually uh, influence us through God's Torah, which he gave to us as a nation. 
and then lastly, we hope and we hope we can contribute towards the conclusion of, 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 of this process by bringing the entire world towards acknowledgement of, the, of this premise. Indeed, on Shabbos, when we pray, we relive and reimagine everything that we're tri- striving to achieve as a nation and indeed as a species. Uh, of course, on Shabbos, we, uh, you know, it's perhaps faith is the central idea. Uh, we're, number one, acknowledging God's creation on the sev- and, and ceasing to create on the seventh day. But also, we're acknowledging His total dominion and our limitations. But it does not stop there. It, we, 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 we hope and we yearn that Shabbat could be a springboard towards hastening our conclusion of what we began so many years ago. And the hopes is that via our analysis of the Shabbat prayer and our understanding of the Shabbat observance and the meaning that we have behind it and the pleasure that we can learn about it and the holiness that we can obtain from it and the faith that we can glean for ourselves, for our family, but indeed for the world, will give us a greater understanding of prayer, certainly a greater understanding of Shabbat and a more meaningful life as Jews. I thank you all for listening and look forward to seeing you all next week. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Rabbi.